They come humbly and God is willing to give such grace. Don't we see that in the Gospels? Don't we see that those who approach the Lord in their need, don't we see that in the brokenness of sin, in all of their diseases, in all of their demonic possession, in all of their destruction, they come to the Lord and he willingly administers grace to their souls. We know, we know from the rest of the Bible that such grace is purchased on Calvary. We understand that grace comes with the great price of the blood of Christ. Good afternoon. You're listening to Let the Bible Speak. Let the Bible Speak is the radio ministry of the Free Presbyterian Church. Stephen Pollock is the pastor of the Free Presbyterian Church of Malvern, Pennsylvania. Thank you for joining us today as he opens the Word of God and lets the Bible speak. Please turn tonight in the Word of God to 2 Kings chapter 2. We're turning once more in our studies in the life and times of Elisha to and 2 Kings chapter 2, and we'll read together from the, in the verse number 19. 2 Kings 2, in the verse 19, uh, the city that's referred to here is the city of Jericho. Uh, again, referred to back in the previous verse, uh, Elisha is here tarrying at Jericho. And then verse 19, and the men of the city said unto Elisha, Behold, I pray thee, the situation of this city is pleasant, as my Lord seeth. But the water is not and the ground barren. And he said, Bring me a new cruise, and put salt therein. And they brought it to him. And he went forth unto the spring of the waters, and cast the salt in there, and said, Thus saith the Lord, I have healed these waters. There shall not be from thence any more death or barren land. So the waters were healed unto this day, according to the saying of Elisha, which he spake. Amen. May God indeed bless his word. Uh, to our hearts. When we consider the, the life and times of Elisha, we must consider him uh, by way of comparison and contrast with his notable predecessor. We saw last time we were studying this, and that Elisha comes uh, after and following and taking the mantle of Elijah. And there is some typical significance in that transition. Elijah, we know in the Word of God, prefigures John the Baptist. There is an Old Testament promise that Elisha would, or Elijah, sorry, would return. And we read in the Gospels, in a portion like uh, Matthew chapter 11, verse 14, and the Lord says, And if you will receive it, this is Elias, which was for to come. Elijah typified John the Baptist. And as John the Baptist comes, he is the fulfillment of the promise of a coming Elijah. And so Elijah's task, like John the Baptist, was to call people to repentance. John the Baptist prepares the way of the Lord. And so in some sense, Elijah is preparing the way for Elisha. That type would then mean that in a real sense, Elisha prefigures Christ. That's seen in a number of ways. Elisha's name means God is salvation. You think of Jesus. Jesus' Savior, Jehovah, is Savior. And thus even in the names of Elisha and Jesus, there is a, a typical parallel. It is interesting that 
Elijah's first public miracle was the withholding of water, the rain from the king Ahab. No rain, said Elijah, except by my word. That first miracle was a call to repentance, just like the ministry of John the Baptist. Elisha now, well, his first miracle, his first public miracle is this healing of the waters, the bringing of the purification of the waters in Jericho. This miracle that is a miracle of grace. Grace. Grace in the life and the ministry of Elisha. And we'll see that as we make our way through uh, the count in the word of God. And so I want to look at this, uh, this narrative, this historical event, this true event of the healing of the waters of Jericho and see it as a type of the glory of the grace of God in the gospel. And note with me to begin with a city that is cursed. You see the men of the city, verse 19. Uh, the city, I said, is a reference to Jericho, as is mentioned in verse number 18. Now, in the days of Elijah and Elisha, you, you can't understand Jericho without recalling some of the historical background. It's a very interesting study. Jericho is prominent in the account of Elijah coming into the scene of history. You go back to 1 Kings chapter 16. And you'll see there a reference to Jericho in the introductory references to the reign of Ahab. 1 Kings 16, verse number 34. In his days, that is in the days of Ahab, did Hiel the Bethelite build Jericho. It's used by the, the writer to emphasize the, the wickedness of Ahab's reign. Jericho is rebuilt. That is in direct, uh, direct violation of the word of God in Joshua uh, chapter 6 and the verse number 26, where Joshua said at that time at the destruction of Jericho, Cursed be the man before the Lord that rises up and buildeth this city Jericho. He shall lay the foundation thereof and his firstborn, and then his youngest son shall he set up the gates of it. There's a curse. And Jericho is overthrown and there's a curse that comes for the rebuilding of Jericho. And that curse is fulfilled in the verse number 34 of 1 Kings 16. He laid the foundation thereof and Abaram his firstborn and set the gates thereof in his youngest son Segeb according to the word of the Lord which is spake by Joshua the son of Nun. God has put a curse upon Jericho and Ahab is so wicked in his reign uh, that he doesn't withstand the people and their deliberate violation of the commands of God. And so when you come to 2 Kings chapter 2 and you come to the reference of Jericho here, you must see that this is indeed a city that is under the curse of God. I think if you even take another minute or two and think about the dates of this, this is more than likely 20 to 25 years after the rebuilding of the city. The men of the city, uh, let's, let's speculate, these were the senior men. The elders of the city here coming to Elisha. And therefore, is it not reasonable to suggest that these were men who themselves were part and parcel of the rebuilding project? These are men who are experiencing the curse of God. They were happy to live in what they referred to as a pleasant city, a nice place to live. But in direct contradiction of the word of God, they are suffering the effects of their sin. And so they bring their complaint. Verse 19, what do they say? The water is not and the ground barren. And the word not there is the word for bad. 
uh, speaks of ground that is unproductive. Is it just the case that the bad waters were leaving the ground unfruitful? That's possible, but the words used, they are highly suggestive of something more than that. There is a, a reference to the ground being barren in verse 19. This word barren has, in the Hebrew language, the meaning of to miscarry. It's translated in Ezekiel 36 by the word bereave. To barren, to be barren, is also in Ezekiel 36, it is to bereave. And thus, perhaps it is the case that animals, and perhaps even the women, are suffering loss of their offspring. And that would be borne out by the verse number 21. When Elisha gives the promise of the healing, he says, from thence there will be any more death or barren land. It seems to be the case that the, the curse here is bringing about death, whether it be animals or, 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 or children, we, we can't be certain. But this is much more than simply ground that is not bringing forth fruit. There is death from the curse. And this is a tragic situation. And these men likely have lost personal livelihood, even perhaps suffered great personal loss. And so what we're seeing here is an historical narrative of people suffering for their wicked rebellion. We understand that it is not always the case that suffering follows wickedness. There are times when the wicked prosper. And there are times when the righteous suffer. Job, a righteous man, suffers in the context of his righteousness. And there are wicked men in the Bible who prosper. And so we must understand that this is not a, uh, an absolute situation, that every time there's wickedness there is physical consequences. But, however, we should not deny the fact that at times God does bring physical judgment in time and in history for the, uh, the chastening and the punishment even of those who break his law. Romans 1 makes it clear that those who violate God's word, they suffer in themselves the due penalty of their error. The people here are suffering as a consequence of sin. It's a good time just to stop and remind you all that sin brings misery. And there are many of you who can bear testament to that fact. It's a simple truth. Sin brings ministry it's, or misery. It's pleasure to our but for a season, but misery results. If there is a verse that in many ways you could write on top of the mirrors in your bathroom that the children could see it day by day. Perhaps it could be Proverbs chapter 13, the verse 15, but the way of transgressors is hard. That there be that living awareness in the lives of young people and in all of our lives that if we engage in the path of sin, such a path will lead to hardship. There's consequences to sin. And so these people from a city, they bring their complaint. And then note in the third place, we see their coming. They come humbly. Look what they say in the verse number 19. I pray thee. It's a petition. It involves a very simple idea. It is the word please. Please. Good manners. But it's also a recognition of humility 
They understand their situation. They say, behold, I pray thee. And do you know what's interesting? They don't actually ask for anything. They don't say what they want. They just simply come and they say, behold, I pray thee. The situation of this city is pleasant, but my Lord seeth, or as my Lord seeth, but the water is not in the ground barren. They bring the problem. What we should understand is that by bringing this problem to Elisha, they are in fact turning to the Lord. Matthew chapter 10, verse 40, gives reference to the fact that he who receives a prophet receives the one who sent the prophet. Elisha is here a prophet and he's been sent by the Lord. And as they receive their prophet and his authority, they are in fact they're receiving the Lord. And thus, this reflects these men and their attitude to the Lord. Something has changed in their souls. They have, they've seen the consequence of their sin. And humbly and reverently they have come and sought the favor of God. Now, this is the appropriate response of the sinner. Not coming with arrogance. A sense of God's favor. Not believing that they can do God benefit and good if God would only simply deal with their situation. These are, these are humble men. Now, once proud men, sons of the rebellious, they have come to God humbly. And God is pleased to bless those who are under the curse of sin. We should never ever grow cold of the statement that God is able to bless those with cursed lives. This is the gospel message that we hold dear. God is able to turn about those who have ignored the warnings of God. Joshua had made the point, do not rebuild the city. But they ignored the warnings and they received the consequence of the warnings. And yet God is pleased to hear the humble prayers of those who are living in the consequence of their sin. That's the gospel. And what a gospel it is. The gospel of God's grace. There are people in our own lives and people in our own, uh, in our own spheres. And we, we see in their lives the marks of their foolish rebellion against the warnings of God. We see the consequence in their lives. Physically and spiritually and emotionally and, and, and in all many ways. And there are those who are suffering the consequence of sin. Fornication. Drugs, alcohol, whatever it might be. And we give them hope. The gospel gives them hope that God is able to intervene in the lives of people who are suffering from the curse of their own foolish rebellion. What a hope there is in that. God is able and willing to hear their prayers. I, I love the very thought that God is able to bless those whose lives are in a mess. Never forget that. Let's be honest, we have a tendency to think that people are beyond God's help. But God is willing and able to intervene in those whose lives are a complete and total mess. That's something of the city under the curse. And the second thing, though, note quickly, the prophet for the people. Here we come to Elisha. The men have come to Elisha. I've said they've, they've come to the Lord by coming to Elisha. But let's, let's not miss the fact that they are coming to a mediator. They're coming to one who will represent them before God. And one who will represent God to them. Note his appointed role. He is the chosen prophet of God. 
And we saw that in verse 13 and verse 15 of the chapter last time. We saw that the spirit of Elijah doth rest on Elisha. He has got the, the sign that having taken the mantle of Elijah, verse 13, that God has been pleased to bless him as the anointed prophet of God. He is the appointed mediator. Elisha is the one who will bring God to these men, bring these men to God. That's his role. Of course, we must think of Christ. We must remind those whose lives are in a mess that they must get to God's appointed, anointed prophet. They must get to Christ, the fulfillment of the prophet, priest, and king. They must get their souls, their life messes. They must get that to Christ. He mediates on behalf of sinners. Note his compassionate response as well. His willingness to mediate grace. Verse 20, and he said, bring me a new cruise. He doesn't say to them, you've brought this on yourself, son. Doesn't say that. How often that is the response of parents. The response perhaps of church people. Somebody shipwrecks their lives they leave the house of God ten years later they come back with all of their misery and they're in their tears and their clothes are ripped and their lives are in a mess and it could well be the response of the pharisaical church to say well you brought this in yourself go and sort out your own troubles you know no sense of that in the ministry of Elisha praise God he has the grace of God in his heart and he shows that grace to others. We see one who is willing, willing without condemnation to dispense grace to humble, pleading sinners. Not to the proud, not to the arrogant, but to the humble God is willing to show grace. Do we have that in the word of God? God gives grace to the humble. Oh, the proud, he seeth afar off, but these men are coming. I pray thee. Look at where we are. We have brought this upon ourselves. We understand we've broken the curse of God. But, but please, they come humbly and God is willing to give such grace. Don't we see that in the Gospels? Don't we see that those who approach the Lord in their need? Don't we see that in the brokenness of sin, in all of their diseases, in all of their demonic possession, in all of their destruction, they come to the Lord and he willingly administers grace to their souls. We know, we know from the rest of the Bible that such grace is purchased on Calvary. We understand that grace comes with the great price of the blood of Christ. But the grace that Christ has purchased is then willingly poured out from the cross upon a multitude of sinners. None of them deserve that mercy. But yet God is willing to dispense that mercy and give them that grace. Oh, certainly it challenges our hearts. How do we respond to those who are suffering from the effects of the curse? How do we do it? We are to minister again Christ to their souls. We are to bring the gospel, the greatest good that man can have. And so we see here a city under a curse. We see a prophet for the people. And finally we see a simple solution. In verse number 20. Bring me a new cruise and put salt therein. Note the simplicity. The means in of itself or in of themselves do not bring the healing. The tree into Mara's waters, 
That didn't solve the problem there. It was God who solved the problem. So it is here. There is a reference to a new cruise. A number of the commentators, Gill, Matthew Poole, others, they say this. One that had never been used. That it might not be thought that the virtue was owing to anything that had been or was put into it. It's hard to be certain what the significance is. But we understand that principle. No one could dispute the miraculous nature of this healing of the waters. Salt is unlikely and insufficient to purify this water. You put a little water or a little salt into water. Yes, it may have a purification effect, but it's not pleasant to drink. And furthermore, the idea of putting a little salt into a spring, that salt would soon be gone. What we're seeing here is that God is delighting in using seemingly hopeless, inadequate means to change things. It's not always God's way. He uses things that are seemingly inadequate and hopeless to change the situation. You think of 1 Corinthians chapter 1, in the verse 26 or verse 27, but God hath chosen the foolish things of the world to confound the wise. You think if I please God, 1 Corinthians 1, 21, that please God by the foolishness of preaching to save them that believe. Salt is the sign that God uses, but the word of God is the effectual cause. Verse 21, thus saith the Lord. It is God that brings the change. You see that? The salt is the visible means, and we'll see its significance in a minute or two. The salt is the means, but it is God who brings about the change. Means that in of themselves look entirely inadequate to do the task, but God uses those means and delights to use those means to bring change that brings about his glory. God is pleased to use the foolishness of preaching to save souls. That's crazy. Not in the heart of God, but in the part of mankind. It's the foolishness of preaching. The idea that a man standing and proclaiming the truth would change radically the lives of those who are in a mess. That doesn't make any sense to man. But to God, he gets all the glory. It means it seems so inadequate. But yet God is pleased. Let me remind you again that you may have great hope of getting loved ones under the preaching of the word of God. But make sure that your confidence is not in the preaching, but is in the God of the preaching. The word of God that is preached, that is what changes lives. And so we see the simplicity. We also see the significance. Salt is used here. It is significant. Purification, we get the sense of that. Verse 21, I have healed these waters. Verse 22, so the waters were healed unto this day. Bad waters are purified. Salt has that picture of purification in the word of God. But when you look back through the Old Testament, you will see that salt has another significance. It's in connection with sacrifice. The meat offering was seasoned with salt. And it's referred to as the salt of the covenant. Leviticus 2, 13, the salt of the covenant. Numbers 18, verse 19, the covenant of salt. Second Chronicles 13, verse number 5, by a covenant of salt. There's a connection between salt and covenant. Connection between salt and grace. Let your speech be always a grace, seasoned with salt. 
So the salt is a picture of God's covenantal grace that secures healing and purification. It's a picture of the gospel that when God in covenantal grace comes into a sin-filled situation, he brings about healing. He does so infallibly. He does so permanently. It's a covenantal promise. So it says in verse 22, so the waters were healed unto this day. And so you see that in this miracle that Elisha comes into prominence having performed, we see a miracle that points to the grace of God in the gospel. God's everlasting covenant of grace is what men under the curse need. And it is that gospel covenant of grace alone purifies souls. God was pleased to hear the humble cries of these men from Jericho. It shows us. It shows us again that we have a message for the nations. A message of gospel hope. And it shows perhaps some of you today, perhaps some who will listen to this message on the radio, it reminds them again. That it's only the gospel that changes lives. And it's only that those souls who come to the greater Elisha, Christ himself, that they will receive grace from God via the mediator, Christ himself. These simple truths that are pictured here are truths that we see repeated, of course, throughout the Bible. Because the Bible has one message. Men are sinners. Christ, the Savior, And therefore, the only hope for sinners is to get to the Savior. And may God be pleased to bless his word to our hearts tonight for his name's sake. Eternal God and our Father, we humbly confess our thankfulness for the gospel of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. We thank you that though we all have lives that were ruined by the fall, we thank you that In Christ Jesus, there is forgiveness and healing. We thank you, Lord, that the covenant of salt is permanent, that those whose lives are changed are changed forever. We thank you, Lord, that your grace never fails. And so as we contemplate our lives today and the days to come, we thank you we can go forward in the security that Christ is our Redeemer, He is our Sustainer, And the work that you have begun, you will indeed complete. Bless the word. And dear Father, we look to thee. We thank you that the gospel of Christ is still the power of God unto salvation. Help us, O Lord, to make that gospel known. And as it is made known here locally and across the states and indeed across the world, may Christ have the preeminence. We pray again in his name. Amen. Amen. Thank you for taking the time to listen to this episode of Let the Bible Speak from Malvern Free Presbyterian Church. We extend an invitation to all to join us as we worship the Lord each week. You will be made very welcome. The church is situated at 80 Mallon Road, Malvern, Pennsylvania. We meet for worship on the Lord's Day at 11 a.m. and 6 p.m. A Bible study and prayer meeting is also held on Wednesday evenings at 7 p.m. If you'd like more information about the gospel or the church, please call 610-993-3170. That's 610-993-3170. Or email malvernfpc at yahoo.com. We preach Christ crucified.